2: Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, is heading to the White House. Uh, he's been summoned, apparently, and there are conflicting reports about whether he is going to resign or it's whether the president as is we going speak. to— Yes, it's, it's just a-
1: changing every every second because now there's an indication that perhaps he's resisting, which is what we would have expected before because right. he's been through so many of these turmoils and has always resisted. So that's why this report was so shocking to yeah. you when it said that he was going to just hang it in let's bring in al hunt he's bloomberg opinion columnist i want to get your thoughts al about how how big of a deal this is basically what's the implication i think that's what markets are trying to figure out that's what a lot of uh, political strategists are trying to figure out as well
3: if i were joe biden i would say things i can't say on radio to say it is a big deal uh, a big blanking deal. I mean, it really. <laughs> we is we
1: got it. I think that, I think most <laughs> listeners got it the first time.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
3: it is, and whether he resigns or is fired is also a very big deal. And there's a, there's an uncertainty at this stage. If he resigns because he feels he has to, that's a that's that's the greatest gift that Donald Trump has had maybe in a year and a half, uh, because. Whoever takes over this investigation, and there is a – the law spells out who would, who would be the next in line. It would be uh, the uh, solicitor general who would probably recuse himself because his law firm is involved in this. And then it would probably be the head of OLC and Mr. Engel. I think it's all, almost certain they are both movement conservatives. It's almost certain that they would not want to give Bob Mueller the kind of freedom and flexibility and independence that Rosenstein did. So therefore, I doubt they would fire Mueller, but uh, I think they would probably try to undercut the investigation. So it is a very big deal.
2: Al Hunt, uh, are there figures and individuals that are currently working in the White House that are trying to undercut the president?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, there really are. Uh, I mean, you know, every day he commands no loyalty. And there, there are fights. There are internecine warfares that go on. Those go, on, go have gone on in other and other administrations. Uh, there are probably more in this administration. The stakes are probably more petty than uh, before. And uh, there is almost no loyalty to this president. So every day, there is a sense. I think among. A number of people who work there is my god what is he up to I mean we've had the quotes uh, attributed to Jim Mattis and attributed to John Kelly and attributed to Gary Cohn that he is he's a fifth or sixth grade education he's an idiot I think there's a widespread belief among a number of people uh, who are in well, the administration that he's not up to this job and, and, and it's dangerous all right
1: so I, I want to push back on you uh, with yep. that because the economy is doing well and I'm looking at markets and frankly markets have not been taking that big of a hit from this I mean initially there was a spike down. But otherwise, it's steady as she goes. We're down a little bit today, but that's to be expected in between uh, earnings season. And, and there, there are a bunch of other reasons, in particular trade, the idea that US and China trade uh, discussions are not going that well. I'm just wondering, do you think that people are too sanguine about what's happening and that it will affect things, just not in the near term? Or well, do you think that this is just, you know, the political and economic are two totally separate universes that aren't intersecting right now?
3: You know probably better than I do that it's impossible to separate the two, Um, but I do think that there is a sense that the economy is doing well, the underlying fundamentals uh, are strong, there's not a sense there's going to be a problem in the foreseeable future, uh, and there's a feeling that whatever the political instability in Washington is, uh, that that's not going to affect it much. Whether that's right or not, I'm not sure. Uh, and I'd have to go back and check all the data during the Nixon years. But my impression is that, 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 the, that the economy at least didn't tank uh, because of the perception that there was a lack of stability in Washington back in 73 and 74. So I'm not really surprised by that.
4: Al, this is June. Hi, June. Um, What do you
1: think will happen if it turns out that Rod Rosenstein is retiring? How do you think Democrats will react
3: well, you put it—you put it very diplomatically. Retiring—is he going to resign or is he going to resign? Be sorry,
1: resigning. I keep on saying retiring because yeah. I think he's had a tough go of
3: it. He sure sorry. has. Um, he, look, he was appointed in the first place by Jeff Sessions in order to run the Department of Justice, manage U.S. attorneys, and then only after he was appointed. Did it come out that Sessions had his own conflict of interest with the Russians? So he was—he was, a, he was a, it was almost an accident that he was put in charge of this, which is what drives Trump so crazy. So if he is fired, I think the Democrats will go ballistic. I think they will try to uh, get legislation that some Republicans have sponsored to assure Mueller's independence. I think there will be a sense that it could be very harmful for Republicans in the midterm elections. If he, however, resigns because he says, I just can't, I can't I can't stay there anymore because of uh, the perception, although all of his people have said that whatever he said about wearing a wire and the 25th Amendment, the men Amendment uh, were said in jest. But if he feels he has to resign, I think that takes a lot of the pressure off Republicans.
2: Al Hunt, the ongoing question of whether he resigns or whether he will be fired, does it really matter?
3: Yeah, it does. It does. It matters. Uh, it, it certainly matters politically. Uh, Number one. And secondly, it matters in in the kind of pressure uh, that is brought to bear on whoever takes his place overseeing the Mueller investigation. If he is fired and say Mr. Engel, who is the head of the OLC, becomes in charge of the Mueller investigation, uh, they're going to be, whether it's the Congress, whether it's outside groups, whether it's the press, they're going to be watching him like a hawk. And I think there'll be a lot more pressure on him not to blow out the case. Uh, So I think it does matter.
1: Al, what do you expect us to actually find out what Mueller's been doing aside from the cases that currently have been prosecuted? In other words, does he have the goods to actually get up to the White House, or is it just going to be sort of left where we've seen
3: it? Well, I don't think we're going to know for certainly months. Um, You know, on the relative uh, uh, spectrum of independent counsels, this has not been a drawn-out process. I mean, what Ken Starr took four years, five years and, you know, much less serious charges and much less success. So, uh, you know, I think we're talking about at least until the early part of next year. That assumes that there's not interference in the investigation and in the process. I don't think he's going to do anything between now and November 6th. And then afterwards, I'm not sure what he's going to do, but there're a whole bunch of people whether it's Michael Cullen or Paul Manafort or some of the others who, who, uh, you know, who, who, as they say, flipped, and they're telling him stuff. They don't, he doesn't give them that kind of a deal unless he thinks they have something to tell, something yeah. to reveal, and that is almost always about someone higher up, uh, and, and there's a limited number of people who are, who are higher up.
1: Yeah. Al Hunt, uh, thank you so much for being with us. I hear your phone uh, beeping. I'm sure it's on fire. I'm sure you're getting calls from everyone uh, under the sun, and I would love to hear what they have to say. Al Hunt, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, coming to us uh, from Washington, D.C. Just in the past few weeks, leaders from the corporate as well as the governmental worlds came together to try to figure out how to stave off some of the mal-effects of global warming. One of them was Barry Parkin. He is Chief Sustainability and Procurement Officer for Mars Incorporated, uh, and he joins us here in our studio. So, uh, Brian, Barry, I was talking about the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco. Uh, You have pledged to uh, reduce Mars's... uh, economic, uh, ecological footprint, carbon footprint, by more than 60% by the year 2050. How do you plan to do that?
5: Well, good morning all. Um, It's an incredibly tough challenge because we plan to do that while we continue to grow. So uh, we're going to do that by uh, getting to zero carbon from our own factories and then transforming what we buy and where we buy it because most of our greenhouse gas footprint is upstream in the raw materials in agriculture. So we have to change the way agriculture works today. Barry, I'm wondering if you could
2: just describe a trip that you made to an Indonesian coconut supplier Tell that story about how that opened your eyes. I mean, you're a veteran at Mars. How did this open your eyes to this new area for the company?
5: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think uh, I didn't grow up uh, believing my career was going to be in sustainability, so it came to me, and uh, it came to me through procurement and buying raw materials. So uh, I guess maybe 15 years ago, I visited a uh, a coconut uh, plantation in Southeast Asia, and uh, the scale of this thing is incredible—hundred kilometers by hundred kil- kilometers. if You can imagine that. Just coconut. Uh, sixty and, miles by sixty miles. Yeah, just and you coconut. can't get to it by road. No, you get there by boat, and you get onto a canal system, and uh, you travel around the whole day, and all you see is coconut. Uh, at the end of the day, I got back to the to their port, and they have two huge factories uh, where they're processing this coconut. And uh, the the thing that then I thought it's a big place, and then they said you're our biggest customer, and this is quite a small ingredient for us. And I suddenly got a sense of the amount of land, the amount of people that were at that point almost invisible to us upstream in our supply chain. And and that's what got me really interested in, you know, what's our footprint on the planet and what's our footprint on people and how do we bring that into our thinking and into our strategies?
1: So how do you make it more sustainable and how do you do it with a cost effectiveness that allows your business to grow?
5: Well, you you, st- you start by setting the right goal, and we've talked about that extremely challenging goal. Um, but you have to you have to drive transformation, and and that means that we have to we have about a million smallholder farmers in our supply chain, and uh, you know the story about smallholder farmers today is they're they're either the the victim of climate change, you know, their livelihoods are going to get impacted, or they're the villains of life of climate change, that they're the ones deforesting uh and, and exp- expanding their land use so we believe we can move them from the victim or or the uh, um, or the villain to the hero and we can do that by the way they they grow the crops in the future if they grow diversified crops lots of different plants and trees and they work on the quality of the soil they can actually pull carbon from the atmosphere and and actually be a big part of the change that we see so we have to check we have to go back so we're you know we're an industrial food business we have to go back to agriculture and go all the way back to those farmers at the beginning of our supply chain and work with them to change what they do that that's what will make the big difference
2: I just want to bring uh, a headline uh, to you that um, this is coming to to us from Axios, is that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein has verbally resigned to the Chief of Staff John Kelly in anticipation of being fired by President Donald Trump. This is according to a source with direct knowledge of the situation. And this, of course, from Axios, we'll be bringing you more details as we get them.
1: And just to give you a sense of the market reaction, the S&P 500 uh, is dropping to a session low in response to this news. But, Barry, you know, I want to pick up on what you're talking about, how you have to go to the farmers. And I just want to go more to the corporate leaders. When you were in San Francisco, did you feel like there was sort of a groundswell of support for this view that you have in trying to push companies in this exact direction? Or is there more pushback given the political situation, talking about politics, uh, and sort of a reduction of some of the uh, gas-emitting regulations?
5: I think everybody gets the the size of the challenge and the urgency here, and, and, and most big companies are working on this. I think what we're saying is that the level of um Of uh, disruption that has to happen is is huge and you know we talk about a a transparency race you know we have to know where all of these materials come from um, because that's what our consumers expect and that's what the activists in our supply chain so we're we're seeing a level of disruption and transformation that perhaps others are not yet seeing I, I talk about the end of the commodities era you know we used to buy these raw materials at arm's length, not really knowing where they came from and not really knowing what conditions. We think that's, that era is over. You have to know where everything that's going into your products, whether it's food products or electronics or whatever, you have but- to know where it all comes from.
1: I just am struck by coconut water that there's an advertisement for it where it says, feel good about your life and feel good about what you put into your body. And it costs about $8 to buy, you know, 12 ounces. And I just have to wonder, you know, is there a cost that people are not willing to pay in order to make things more sustainable on the consumer side?
5: Yeah, you know, I think uh, it's been slower than anybody would expect, but consumers are moving towards sustainability. Uh, there's always been a, a few percent that really care about this. And I think we're slowly seeing that grow. It's not happening as fast as probably any of us predicted. But our view going forward is that in 5, 10, 15 years, consumers will uh, make more and more conscious choices around more sustainable products. And we want to be at the forefront of that. And that means one of the things that you've got, they have to know where everything that's going into the product that they're going to eat uh, comes from, and and that's the big change. And if you if you do that, uh, then you're inevitably into longer-term relationships and more direct relationships with those farmers. And and that's the big procurement sourcing change that's happening in the world at the moment.
2: Barry, uh, because of M&Ms, because of Mars bars, because of all the great chocolate confectionery products that you make, I want you to talk, if you can, about cocoa supply, because the whole supply chain topic that you just described is something that you're currently working on with cocoa. Indeed, this is part of an overall initiative. You're going to be spending, what, a billion dollars over the next decade?
5: Yeah, you know we all love chocolate, and and the the, the truth is you can't make chocolate without cocoa. So uh, we have to fix uh, the supply chain of cocoa, and it, and it's incredibly hard. Cocoa is grown by uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of smallholder farmers, and uh, we have to help them become more productive and uh, and increase their incomes. Many of them are not doing great. And uh, it's been really challenging. We and the rest of the industry have been working on this for decades. So we announced in the last couple of days a big new investment, as you say, a billion dollars to be spent over the next 10 years uh, to to invest with farmers, to move them from being smallholder farmers that just grow cocoa to uh, Larger farms, we think that 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 will happen over time and they'll grow more things than cocoa. Because
2: it's seventy five thousand farmers. You're talking about a lot of people right now.
5: Yep, yeah, that's the start. And and I think what we need to do is we need to demonstrate at scale there's a path to those farmers becoming more and more successful, employing other people and and you know, back to what we were talking about earlier also pulling carbon out of the atmosphere into their into their farms. We've, we've proven this at small scale. The challenge has always been to scale this up to tens and hundreds of thousands, and that's why we're investing more money.
1: So I'm just wondering which countries that are major farm producers have been the most eager to work with you and the most effective in making some of these changes?
5: Um, we source from africa asia all over the world i think uh, you know a good example would be on uh, on deforestation in west africa where uh, we've made a real breakthrough in building a public private partnership industry and the governments of cote d'ivoire and ghana uh, we've got a really strong cocoa and forests initiative now where it lays out very clearly what government are going to do and very clearly what industry are going to do and I think that's a great example of you know if you really spend the time to work out and get an alignment of interests you can make progress and and uh, we think we can stop deforestation by working together this is not easy, you know, and, and many other countries, we're not yet necessarily on the same wavelength, and uh, but that's what we have to do. I think we've shown over and over that industry can't solve this on their own, and often government can't solve this on their own, and it's the two together that will get this done.
1: Barry Parkin, thank you so much for being with us. Truly a pleasure having you. Barry Parkin is Chief Sustainability and Procurement Officer for Mars uh, in New York. They have a $1 billion sustainability investment uh, currently to reduce the carbon footprint of its businesses and supply chain by more than 60% by 2050.
0: A
2: Crisis of Beliefs, Investor Psychology and Financial Fragility. That is the title of a new book written by Professor Andre Schleifer. He is a professor of economics at Harvard University. His co-author with the book is Nicola Genauli is the Professor of Finance at the Bocconi University in Italy, in Milan, and Andre Schleifer joins us now. Professor, thank you very much for being here. Talk a little bit about the misconceptions that investors, or indeed anyone, has about
6: financial crises. Uh, Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, This is a book about financial crisis. It uh, kind of takes off from where uh, Charlie Kindleberger, the great economic historian, has left off maybe 40 years ago, and it says that uh, most financial crises are kind of the same, which is to say that they start with a bubble. Uh, this time, this was a bubble in the housing market. Sometimes, it's bubble in government bonds. When these bubbles collapse, people lose a lot of money, but more importantly, banks lose a lot of money, and uh, that's how Uh, you get into a crisis, and 08 was pretty similar. Now, you asked about misconceptions. There are kind of two stories that are often floating around that don't square well with this uh, uh, set of facts. The first one is that it's all the bank's fault. You probably have heard about too big to fail and how banks were uh, speculating uh, and uh, getting uh, homeowners to, or households to buy houses. The truth is everybody was in on it people wanted to buy homes banks wanted to finance homes rating agencies wanted to make it simpler
0: right
6: when you have a bubble everybody is speculating so it's not just the banks uh it's everybody the second misconception which is more dramatic one uh, and it's been a misconception that has been kind of um advocated or pursued by some of the protagonists, the policymakers, in 2008, which is that uh, the crisis is a total surprise, which is to say that Lehman came out of nowhere. The fact of the matter is that bubbles move, bubbles and crisis move very, very slowly, and there was 18 months of banks facing stratospheric losses before we had Lehman. That's really a very big misconception.
1: There also is a misconception of behavioral economics and how that plays into things. Uh, People talk about the post-2008 era and how millennials, for example, have not been investing in stocks as much as their peers, and and not to mention the fact that, you know, the sort of fervor that creates bubbles. How does behavioral economics and psychology play into this?
6: Well, Crucial part about bubbles is uh, twofold. One is that people think that trees grow to the sky, which is to say in this case, that people felt that they would get 10% a year returns on uh, their homes forever, which is what happened for a few years, but it can't happen uh, forever. The second part, and this is where behavioral economics also comes in, is that people uh, don't see the risks of bubbles and in particular of imploding bubbles. And that gets uh, them too optimistic, but then, just as you said, incredibly scared. So when you talk about the millennials, the millennials, of course, to the extent that they were involved in it, got really terrified and have now stayed out of the market.
1: So talking about that balance of being overconfident and too overly terrified, where are we right now?
6: I think we clearly are in a regime of overconfidence and extrapolation, you know, stock market, is at very high levels. The uh, Volatility is uh, very, very cheap. Uh, Credit spreads are very, very low. Expectations are very optimistic. That are all the indicators uh, of uh, of financial markets being in a bubble. Now the good news, just to finish this thought, is that of course banks are in much better shape today uh, than they were in 2008. So if this bubble starts Uh, imploding, I don't think we're going to see the crisis that we saw 10 years ago.
2: But in that same vein, if indeed the banks are unduly blamed for the financial crisis, one of the misconceptions, then do you believe that the policy responses were overdone and that they don't necessarily need all this additional capital since perhaps they were not as responsible as many people believe?
6: Well, actually, I think quite the reverse. Um, It seems to me that to the extent that there was a policy error in 2008, it was that the policymakers were way too slow. They were way behind the curve. Uh, The way in which huge crises like Lehman occur is when banks uh, lose a tremendous amount of money and when people think that their solvency is threatened. Uh, When uh, the economy or when the financial system is in such a situation, the uh, regulators and policymakers need to intervene fast and they need to intervene aggressively. And what happened in 2008 is that policy was pretty passive until Lehman. And uh, of course it was very active and very aggressive right after Lehman, but it was too late to save the U.S. economy.
1: Yeah, I I just want to go back to something you said where you said we're definitely in the overconfident part of the cycle. Some people would argue that you have so many naysayers out there threatening that we're going to see the downfall of markets, and they have been doing this for years, that that is sort of a credible specter of threat that sort of keeps everything in check. Just quickly here, we have a minute left. What's your, what's your perspective on that?
6: Uh, look, uh, it's one thing we know about bubbles is that it's impossible to call the top. All the evidence shows that. And so right now, I'm not telling you the markets are going to go down next month or next year. Uh, or even in two years. They might keep going up for a while. The point is that there are all the signs of a financial system uh, in the state of quite extreme exuberance.
1: Thank you so much for being with us.
6: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: Andre Schleifer is professor of economics at Harvard University in Boston, co-author of a new book, a Crisis of Beliefs, Investor Psychology, and Financial Fragility, talking about some of the misconceptions of financial crises. So there has been a lot of discussion around investing with a lens toward gender, in other words, women, and how much power they have in the workforce in a variety of different ways. Joining us now is someone who's been working uh, deeply on that, Alicia Levine, Chief Market Strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Before we get started, I know you are announcing a new fund that focuses on gender parity in the Japanese workforce,
4: but can you just talk more broadly about the concept of Womenomics? Well, thanks for having me here today. So this is actually very exciting because Womenomics is actually an an economic platform of the Japanese government. In 2013, the Prime Minister Shinzo Abe realized that there had to be socioeconomic changes in Japan in order to have economic growth. And that's because Japan has negative population growth. And in order to grow G- GDP, you have to have a population that can work. And so with negative population growth, you can't grow GDP. So what does Japan have as a, a perfect resource? A highly educated population. But women were staying home and they weren't going into the public sphere and working. And so Womenomics, which was launched in 2013 by the government, is a policy, an economic and social policy to encourage women to work and go into the workforce. So that means everything from building daycare centers to rewarding companies who promote and hire women to senior leadership. And so everybody has a stake in this.
2: Now, the Dreyfus Japan Womenomics Fund, it's the first U.S. thematic fund for BNY Mellon why was that the first one
4: so actually um bny mellon investment management has launched eight thematic funds over the last seven years but many in in europe and asia this is the first womenomics fund that we're launching here in the us and we think this is the perfect time for several reasons the first is that we have a four-year track record and as we know institutional and on the retail side clients want to see A track record and evidence that the thematic investing is actually working and in fact we're very proud and happy with our managers track record here the other thing is that we just feel like this is the right moment for thematic funds and gender lens investing with everything that's happening and the conversations that are happening daily we think there's a lot of interest so is
1: the idea here to invest in companies that adhere to the sort of concepts of
4: womenomics the most closely, is that the idea? So so the fund looks at companies through three different criteria. The first is, do they hire and promote women into senior leadership? The second is, is their consumer m- more likely to be a woman than a man? And third, do they directly or indirectly benefit from womenomics? So here's my
1: question how do you sort of correlate performance with respect to company earnings with some of these policies? Because at the end of the day, people want to make money.
4: That's true. So let's, let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about labor force participation. So it took 20 years for labor, the female labor force partici- participation rate to go from 55% to 60%. So that took 20 years. In five years, from 2013 to today, that rate went from 60% to 67%. It also means that the entire labor force is being driven by women entering the labor force, not by men. So if your consumer is a woman, you're more likely to be a growth company. You're more likely to outperform. And it's kind of a simple topic, but you can actually draw the lines between women working, having more economic power, and the decisions they make with their capital. And it's it's kind of a simple thing, but it works. And it turns out that you can invest this way. In addition, it's... Um, companies which have 20% or more women on executive committees or in senior leadership tend to outperform the Topix Index. So there is evidence that promotion of women to senior leadership does lead to company outperformance.
2: What... Would you measure the performance of the fund, again, since there is no specific benchmark?
4: So so we use the Topix Index, which is the uh, index of, of all the Japanese companies. Um, that index has over 2,000 stocks right now. Our fund has, is a high conviction fund with 50 positions that are curated and, and picked specifically f- on one of these three criteria and also growth going forward and you know earnings going forward.
1: One thing I'm wondering is how applicable this concept of womenomics is to say the US because Japan is sort of uh, an, its own story unto itself due to the population shrinkage, whereas a place like the United States has immigration, has a higher
4: population rate. So, we think right now Japan is the place to actually test the gender lens thesis because it's the only place where you have an enormous change of women entering the workforce driven by the government and it's measurable. It's very hard in other places where you already have very high labor force participation rates and closer gender parity in income. Japan still has a wage gap, a very wide wage gap and as the government tries to get that to close you can see that the spending power for women just increases
2: the criteria for the companies does it matter in terms of market cap size
4: it's all it's all sizes in our fund right now it tends to be more skewed to small cap but for instance we look at sectors all over the place and one of the most interesting sectors we're looking at is construction because you wouldn't think that this would be a, a sector that would benefit from womenomics, however, they can't find labor. And as construction becomes more tech-oriented and less heavy lifting, it turns out that the marginal marginal employee are, is a woman right now. And so those are the kinds of decisions that we're looking, and you can really only do it by fundamental analysis and knowing what you own. So we tend to be heavy in retail, in services, construction, um, but something, for example, uh, as a, um, as a, um, you know, a, um, when, when people are out of the house, you may need security services because there's nobody home. So security services are doing well because all of a sudden the women are not at home anymore. So things you wouldn't think of, but you can definitely draw the line. All right.
2: Thank you very much for uh, being with us and sharing this information. Alicia Levine is uh, the chief strategist for uh, BNY Mellon, speaking about the uh, Dreyfus Japan Equity Womenomics Fund.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
2: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz 1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
3: Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have
2: no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you.